You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listening to? Um... <laughs> Chart music. <laughs> Chart music. Hey, up, you pop crazed youngsters, and welcome to part three of episode 65 of Chart Music. I'm Al Needham, standing firm with my good friends Neil Kulkani and David Stubbs, and we are tucking into an episode of Top of the Pops from 1982 that is so good that thoughts of turning over for the build-up of the World Cup semi-final are currently far from our minds. We're not interested in the slightest about fucking about. We want to get stuck into the next bit of this episode. So to use the parlance of the playground of the day, Socrates goal! Not to be practiced without supervision, I guess. Jeffrey Daniels from Shalimar and a night to remember. And by way of a contrast now, let's join ACDC in concert for those about to rock. Finally surrounded by some real kids, including a youth in an orange Hawaiian shirt who looks like he's in an orange juice tribute band, a girl in a blue banana armor vest, and a really chunky black lad in a white dinner jacket that he's actually tucked into his jeans, (laughs) warns us not to either pop or lock without adult supervision and calls him Jeffrey Daniels again. He then offers up a change of pace as he introduces for those about to rock by ACDC. Formed in Sydney in 1973, ACDC were a glam band put together by Malcolm and Angus Young, two transplanted Glaswegians whose older brother George was a member of the Easy Beats and the co-writer of Love is in the Air for John Paul Young, no relation, and whose sister gave them the inspiration for the name when they saw it on a sewing machine. After rapidly rising through the ranks of the local scene and bagging a support slot on Lou Reed's tour of Australia in the summer of 74, they changed their management, relocated to Melbourne, ditched the glam for a blues rock sound and knobbed off their lead singer for another Scottish immigrant, Bon Scott, who had recently come out of a three-day coma after having an argument with his previous band, the Mount Lofty Rangers, getting pissed up and having a bit of a crash on his motorbike. 
1975, they put out their first LP, High Voltage, and a year later, they landed a worldwide deal with Atlantic Records, which led to them playing the Lock Up Your Daughters tour, sponsored by Sounds, and being properly introduced to the UK. They made the first dent on the UK singles chart in 1978 when Rock and Roll Damnation got to number 24 in July of that year and they spent the rest of the 70s making more of an impression on the LP chart than the singles one. In February of 1980, they were back in the UK to promote their latest single, A Touch Too Much, which they performed on top of the pops, but 12 days after that performance, Scott was found dead in a friend's car in East Dulwich after a night at the music machine. Although the remaining members of the band were inclined to finish there and then, they were told by Scott's parents that Bond wouldn't want them to, so the search for a new frontman was on. After being turned down by their first selection, Noddy Holder, they were advised by their producer, Mutt Lang, to give Brian Johnson, the former lead singer of Jordan, a fair go. Remembering that Scott had bigged him up to the band after seeing a performance in the 70s, which ended with Johnson rolling around and screaming on the floor and having to be taken off in a wheelchair, and unaware that Johnson didn't normally do this but was suffering a severe attack of appendicitis at the time, they tried him out and gave him the job. They immediately set to work on their next OP, Back in Black, in the Bahamas. And when it came out in August of 1980, it smashed into the UK album chart at number one, staying there for two weeks and eventually selling over 50 million copies worldwide and becoming the second biggest OP of all time after Thriller. This is the second cut from the follow-up LP of the same name, which came out in November of 1981. It's the follow-up to Let's Get It Up, which got to number 13 in February of this year. It entered the chart at number 25 last week, and this week it's up 10 places to number 15. And here is a sliver of the 6 minute 18 seconds video, which was filmed on tour in late 1981 at a gig in Landover, Maryland. And finally... ACDC step in the arena. And this is the reason that we're doing this episode, Pop Craze Youngsters. Neil threatened to knock me out with those American thighs of his <laughs> if we didn't do an episode with ACDC on it. So there we go. Much to talk about, but I think the first thing we need to discuss is fucking hell, Noddy Holder, really? Oh, oh, oh absolutely. You know what, though? That would have totally worked. Yes, it, it would. He's, he's got just the right voice for DC, that kind of raucous yeah. growl, but also an ability to do pop, mm. which um, you need as an ACDC vocalist. It boggles the mind. Yeah, c- confirmed by him in an interview, mm. straight from the lave's mouth, if you will. I mean, it could have worked. It, it almost feels like too good to be true. I just yeah. wonder if Noddy Holder would have, you know, with his kind of the, all of the kind of the baggage and history that he brings, he might have like overwhelmed it. I think that yeah. Brian Johnson yeah. is just right. Well, it would have overwhelmed it in Britain and bits of Europe but in America they didn't know who he was really. No, no. I mean several people um, were up for audition for ACDC they did end up with the right man for the job Yeah, Yeah, I've wanted to talk about ACDC for ages because for me they're one of the greatest. Mm. Um, I mean firstly I'd like to, (laughs) if that's okay to talk about the Bon era for Mm. me that period um, they are one of the great 
reductivist rock bands of all time. That run of albums mm. they did from 76's High Voltage through their high point, Power Age, I think, to their perhaps true masterpiece of crossover, Highway to Hell. It's one of the best runs of the 70s. This being on top of the pops, even though it's just a sliver... I can just hear the denim creaking in living rooms up and down the country just enjoy at this. Yeah. The wristbanded fists would be <laughs> pumping the air right now, wouldn't oh, they? Oh, yeah. Just so big with the kids and also grown-up metal fans. And the thing is, though, although they're tied in with heavy rock and metal, of course, they've mm. always stood somewhat apart from that. For ACDC, I think the distance of Australia might have helped in a sense. Yeah. They look at heavy music, the rest of heavy music, that is, in the 70s, and they... they kind of look at it with a kind of contempt beyond that i think they look at the 60s with contempt Mm. they see everything going wrong with rock and roll as soon as elvis joins the army basically (laughs) you know when you listen to songs like rocker or a song like let there be rock which attempts to you know biblically tell the story of rock and roll and (laughs) and claim that history it reveals fundamentally you know they're little richard obsessives that's what they are ultimately and we should always be looking for the little richard's obsessives in 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 Mm. the 70s including the new york dolls as well so musically you know acdc stand apart in the 70s from the rest of the kind of metal brigade if you like there's an almost punk like insistence on simplicity on three or four chords yeah you know which is ironic because they hated punk yeah when when they came to the uk people come up to say are you punk then because you're dead lad yeah and Um, yeah they they weren't impressed but let that be rock that album is loved by punks precisely Mm. because of its raucousness and kind of its simplicity you know everything they do is three or four chords angus is this amazing virtuoso but what he's playing it's not van halen type shit or or richie blackmore type shit it's just pure licks and magic there's, there's no attempt mm. to bring anything outside of yeah. rock into rock or progress it in any way the mm. attempt always with acdc's music is to just purify and distill the impact of rock and and i've got to say as a rhythm section there's an almost disco-like solidity that sets in by that 78 to what malcolm angus and phil rudd do when you listen to the grooves of something like touch too much which i think is possibly their high point the disco groove of that is really brought out by mutt lang he really pushes them to a new level if you like and in this period before we're seeing them here um atop of all of this is was bon who called himself a toilet poet. Yeah. I would argue he's one of the greatest rock lyricists ever. I mean, granted, they're, they're kind of laughable, you know, the body of Venus with arms, you know, and things like that. <laughs> but there's too many amazing couplets by Bond to pick up. But crucially, he has this openness and generosity in his lyrics that are unlike anyone else in rock. Mm. For my daughter, who's 16, you know, getting to learn 70s rock, she loves Zepp, she loves DC. She noticed this. When you think about Black Dog by Led Zeppelin, for instance, you know, big yeah. leg woman's not got no soul it's i mean i'm not saying it's body shaming or anything but contrast that with whole lot of rosie which is just yeah. a celebration of this enormous groupie and, and he's he's always like that he's got a real bonner's just got this genuinely canny ear for a really iconic lyrics and the symbols of the kind of the latter half of the 20th century that are important and that become totemic things for the band all of the acdc songs from that glorious run i'm talking about they're all about um electricity Cars, mm. tattoos, V8 engines, <laughs> and very, very elemental rock and roll. It's kind of lyrically, he's actually quite a lot like Mark Boland, but entirely shorn of that kind of Beltane Way elfin stuff. It's mm. pure blue collar. 
And yeah. when Bon Scott, I mean, I just think it's it's one of the greatest runs of albums and one of the greatest bands of the seventies. So when Bon Scott dies, it's a big deal. It's not kind of something that's going to be easy to replace. Unlike a lot of metal bands who struggle with new singers. Um, like Sabbath and Dio, Ronnie James Dio, for instance. It, ACDC are always going to just sail on because of the innate simplicity of the music. But you have yeah. to have a frontman that, you know, makes it work. There's never going to be any musical differences in ACDC because they all just basically have a massive intolerance for fannying about. Yeah. So... You know, Johnson, as you said, he's an idol of Scott, who recalls, you know, seeing him as a frontman for Geordie. The good sign, actually, at the audition is they're waiting for him upstairs, mm. and he doesn't turn up. Um, they find out that Brian Johnson's actually downstairs playing pool with the roadies, which is a right. good sign if you're going to be an ACDC. You know, you get on with roadies, you're, you're a drinker, mm. etc. And he auditions with a whole lot of Rosie. He also does Nutbush City Limits, yes, which does, I yes. wish I could have heard that. You know, he's still living with his mum. He is, yeah. But as a rebrand, what they do with Back in Black is amazing. Uh, You know, like you say, it's such a big seller. In the year it comes out, it's only outsold in the States by like five other albums. The only rock album ever to sell more worldwide than this album is Dark Side of the Moon. And it's a massive totemic album for kids who'd miss the 60s and 70s. And I do think that for a lot of new ACDC fans, it's the start you know, back in black and, and, and kind of the Bond, I'm not saying the Bond Scott era is forgotten, but um, they're a new sort of sized band at this point because they're stadium sized now. Yeah. And Brian Johnson crucially has a stadium sized voice. Yes, um, what was warm and lovely about Bond Scott's voice was it's almost kind of sleazy nightclub size and feel, which suited childish songs like Big Balls and, and stuff mm. like that. And Balls was another mm. obsession of theirs. But by sticking to what they did, they, they carve out this very unique turf and i have to say you know i have been in the past um, very much you know you know what i'm like with bands when they split up i'm kind of very doctrinaire mm. oh no aussie no sabbath you know and i was for a while kind of oh if it's not bon scott i'm not interested that's not dc yeah. anymore um i have to say though the first couple of albums with brian back in black's a masterpiece and the one that this is from as well is is still a good record yeah. but they're, they're unique at this point in metal i know i know they're kind of almost um array of metal cliches in a sense but you've got to realize on the one side of heavy metal you have bands like iron maiden and priest and merciful fate what are they doing they're multiple time signatures lots of fiddliness lots yes. of galloping no groove you know and progging it up you can't dance to those bands you can only kind of headbang and on the other side i would argue you've got motorhead you've got saxon and you've got acdc you can dance to these bands they've got groove rather than just gallop in fact you yeah. could see this very track for those about to rock, as a kind of twin of Saxon's hilarious yet brilliant denim and leather, a celebration of the audience akin to sort of we are the champions. But but for me, it does reveal the shortcomings, if you like, of this new iteration. Brian's voice is kind of unlovable. It's this squawky thing. I should stress... I've only seen ACDC once uh, at the NEC. It was like about 10, 15 years ago. And they were fucking amazing. It was in a period where I was watching bands playing stadiums, rock bands like Pearl Jam, for instance. And what a band like that does in a stadium, 
they play what they'd play in a club and they just assume a stadium should get with it. ACDC yeah. never did that. They, they're full-on showmen. Massive bell that Brian swings from and big catwalk that Angus can do his duck walk down and all of that. And at the back of it, there's the rhythm section and the rhythm guitarist just staying virtually still and just keeping this massive mammoth groove going. They were fucking amazing. But as a recorded phenomenon, from this time on, really, uh, ACDC become a singles band more than an albums band. And they get kind of repetitive in a bad way, ripping themselves off over and over again. And without Bond's humour and his lyrical grace, they become a bit cold. Um, It all becomes about power and electricity. And and there's, I don't know, there's no warmth to it. They're still, as you can see in this video, although, my God, what a grainy fucking video this is. You can barely see through the murk. But um, they're still gloriously cartoonish, albeit now with, you know, seemingly someone from the Jocks and the Geordies in them. But but that, but that, that comically overdrawn thing with the lyrics always means no one can really take offence. My only kind of problem with this, I guess, is it does signpost the future and its ACDC become increasingly less relevant. Although, when the Beastie Boys bring out Licence to Will, you know, I mean, that's covered in ACDC samples. ACDC become a real source. Hmm. This appearance here, this video, it's great that Top of the Pops is showing it, but it's too brief. It seems almost tokenistic. But for the kids who are into ACDC, this would have been a mega fucking moment. This would have been, you know, one of our bands appearing. So it's glorious to see them. I I think, yeah, for me, Bon Era tops everything. And it's one of the greatest discographies in all of rock. By now... It's becoming a bit samey, and I don't think Brian's enough to sell that sameness. He's not got enough wit and humour. But, you know, I, I, I'm still hard pushed to resent this. They're still good at this point. Yeah. And, and it's glorious to see them on top of the pots. In amidst this episode in particular, they yes. really are completely out of the blue in this episode. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the interesting things about metal fans, isn't it? They're, they're extremely forgiving of big lineup changes in their favourite bands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We spoke in the previous episode about Echo and the Bunnymen getting mm-hmm. rid of Ian McCulloch and, and struggling on, on their own in the undertones mm. and people like that. Yeah, it's yeah. like, no, that's game over. Mm. But with metal fans, they're all right with it. They're all right with it. I mean, beyond being all right, they're quite, I mean, I, I remember when Ian Gillen, you know, mm. is, is kind of, um, uh, becomes Black Sabbath vocalist. He's got absolutely no problem doing Paranoid and all of these things that Ozzy did. He's also yeah. got no... Sabbath have no problem doing Smoke on the Water, you know. Yeah. Um, there's this, yeah, there's this kind of openness to that kind of thing. Because for metal fans, these big totemic bands are massively important. They don't want to see them disappear. No. Um, and everyone, truth be told, everyone was really heartbroken about Bon Scott going. It was too mm. soon. There was lots more to do. So yeah. I remember amongst my mates who were metal fans at this time, they were ever so, ever so happy that ACDC were carrying on and not calling it a day. Because even to this day, there's something that happens with Angus Young where he can still knock out at least one killer riff per album. It's normally the single, and it sort of justifies their existence in a way. Is it because in metal bands, the lead guitarist is the real front person because yeah. Angus was the absolute star of ACDC oh, yeah. amongst my pairs without a doubt I mean if Angus my mate had a dog called Angus <laughs> after Angus Young 
Yeah, I mean, if <laughs> Angus was not only... Yeah, he's he's almost like the mascot of the band. He's like Eddie mm. is to Iron Maiden. He has to appear on every sleeve. You know, there's lots of ACDC sleeves where he's the only person on it. And, you know, I mean, Angus crystallises everything that's amazing about the band. Look at his duck walk, total homage mm. to, to Chuck Berry, but also a statement, you know, that rock and roll got ruined once the 50s were over. It's a real kind of purist idea. Um, yeah. If Angus had been unfortunate to have passed on ACDC there's no way they would have continued um, another guitarist yeah. simply would not have done it um, at no. all Sabbath as well if Tony Iommi went you know what I mean it just would not happen but that's I think I think to a certain extent that's partly to do with the fact that with a lot of metal bands the guitarists are the prime motivators and instigators of the band um, mm. because they're the ones into guitar rock they're the ones who want to be guitar heroes and they consequently are often the ones who start the band and if the band you know lose them they're forced to fall apart I mean Richie Blackmore hasn't let a band happen in a sense that he's not part of you know even when Rainbow were popping out he was very very angry about all of that guitarists dominate heavy metal you're right um, much more than frontmen yeah. I'm not saying frontmen no, are interchangeable yeah. but you know no. um, they're, they're a lot more interchangeable than guitarists same thing up with Iron Maiden yeah Paul Diano first album yeah and then Bruce Dickinson forevermore um, unfortunately mm. Diano was great I would actually not mind Maiden if he'd have stayed vocalist can't stand Bruce Dickinson there's just something a bit Brexity oh. about that guy we'll come to that in good time <laughs> let yeah. the rock expert have his say um, yeah I mean I think it's true about you know guitar heroes no one wants to be a bass hero for instance yeah I mean it is very much you know, <sighs> a few minute thing. so anyway it's 1982 there I am in the um, junior common room at uh, my Oxford College in my semiotic trousers mm. and red rays in for rock. <laughs> well yeah yeah but of course, you know, I'm very much anti-rockist at this time, in line with enemy orthodoxy, mm. and my lip is inevitably curling at the prospect of ACDC. <laughs> I mean, at this point, metal was just despicable. It was it was like the Tory party yeah. or something like yeah. that. People like the Tigers <laughs> of Pantang were like Norman Tebbit or something like that in my <laughs> aesthetic ideology. You know, which is funny. They were sexist, troglodyte, mm. all my kind of cultural mm. values were... You know, metal was a deliberate affront to them, my aesthetic values or whatever, everything. I would have sneered a bit at ACDC at the time. I think I made a sort of, you know, I cut a sort of rather cutting quip in the um, college magazine about <laughs> Led Zeppelin meet the Crankies. <laughs> no, which sadly didn't torpedo their careers. I would go and see Led Zeppelin meet, meet the, the Crankies. Yeah, but I mean, it's, you know, it didn't torpedo their careers, and I think that's just as well, really. We Jimmy Page. <laughs> Now, the thing about when AC, about ACDC, when you actually sort of listen to them, as I did, I would have confused feelings, you know, basically. It's a bit like finding Hitler a bit erotic or something like that. Well, actually, it's not that. It's beyond that. Genuinely, they're fucking good. Um, yes. You know, you'd not just have a heart of stone not to like ACDC, but ears of stone and, frankly, a brain of stone. <laughs> there is an Australian component in a sense. You know, it's like Ayers Rock. It is pure rock. There's no twaddling yeah. about. It is, yeah, as yeah. Neil said, it's reductive. It's getting to the absolute essence of rock. You know, and it, it, oh, I mean, <laughs> M- Motorhead kind of got a pass, I think, you know, by the punks. And, and yeah. I think ACDC should have uh, a similar sort of thing. Yeah, the fact that he does dress like a schoolboy, Ang- Angus Young, there's that wonderful sort of masculine self-effacement going on just in mm. that, really. You know, there's mm. no sort of self-glorification or whatever, you know. And I think there was always a sense of that. You know, there's just no bullshit about them. Yeah. If you didn't know ACDC, you wouldn't be able to tell them from their own roadies, would you? <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. No, yeah, you wouldn't. Well, no, absolutely. No, I just yeah. think that you know, Brian Johnson is, you know, he's got 
sort of sufficient pedigree, but he isn't. He, he doesn't really that much of a star. Really, he feels kind of replaceable in a sense. Really, mm, I think what he yeah. provides is mm. a texture. He provides uh, a necessary element. But what's really important is obviously Angus Young and the rock and the riffage. The thing is with the school uniform with Angus, what it also neatly does, it destabilises any sense of egoism, yes. um, really. And, yeah. and that's absolutely crucial to ACDC. ACDC are not a band of egos. What they are is a band of... It, it is five cogs in a machine, ultimately. Mm. And, yeah. and it's the machine-like nature of what they make that makes it so beautiful. It glides. It's got hydraulics to it. It's lubricated. It's a lovely, lovely thing when it's set in motion. Now, I don't think Angus is replaceable because he's the main songwriter. But I think by doing that, by making himself look a bit daft, basically, mm. he stopped any sense of ego in a sense, you know, that I'm at the front mm. and I'm the most important or look at me, I'm amazing. It's just, you know, when these guys plug in and play, something fucking miraculous happens and, and it yeah. still happens. And you can mm. see it happening here. Brutally truncated though it is. I mean, maybe that's just me as a metal fan thinking, oh, that's not long enough. But it just felt yeah. a bit, you know, clipped. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it was—it's lovely that they put it on. I mean, you know, Back in Black was a massive success, so it makes sense for Top of the Pops to put it on. But it would also make complete sense for them to not bother. But these are the moments that you know kids will remember. If you're sat there with your sister who's in a pop and you're in a metal, and this comes on, that's a fucking moment and a half that you that you'll probably never forget. So mm. wonderful to see it in the midst of an episode that, um, apart from this, is obviously like really—I mean, apart from some of the dreadful shit that we might run into soon um it's quite free of rock it's nice to have a bit of raunch and heaviness in the middle of it here i mean of course being a jam lad who was still reeling mm. from the events of the autumn of 1981 when i went back to school and discovered that most of my peers had swapped their madness modness badges for acdc patches <laughs> I, I would have been watching this not necessarily with disgust but with puzzlement yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i mean when my nephew was five years old his favourite thing to eat for his tea was half a cucumber rolled in salt. Yeah, lovely. And I would sit there just watching him thinking, really? You, you actually really like that? Seriously? And I'd have been doing the same thing with this, you know, just trying to work out why my peers were into something that absolutely reeked of the 70s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'd be thinking, did we have the Lambrettas for nothing then? <laughs> you know what I mean? I, mean, I get it now, of course, mm. but... At the time, it was like, it felt like a step backwards, but I didn't hate it because ACDC are absolutely impossible to hate. Definitely. Yeah. 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 I, and I, I mean, like, it, I, I said, there was a lot of tribalism in the 80s, and, you know, oh, you're but, just yeah, definitely. And, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's much easier metal bands to hate in this period. Mm. Like mm. fucking Maiden, for instance. Maiden at uh, the zenith of that kind of ridiculous, laughable side of metal. Um, I hope we get on to Maiden, actually, because I want to slag them off at some point. But um, just to annoy my daughter. But yeah, there, there is that totally <laughs> laughable side of metal. ACDC, no. If you're laughing, you're kind of half getting the point, to be honest yeah. with you, with ACDC. Mm. So you're telling on yourself if you laugh at them. Yeah. I mean, yes, it is good that Top of the Pops have put this on. But, you know, you've got to downgrade them a little bit for lopping off the intro, mm. which sounds a bit like Barbara O'Reilly era who. Mm -hmm. And they've cut it before they get to the cannons going off, which is clearly the best bit. Yeah, it's yeah. the 1812 moment, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Maybe they were worried about kids going off and playing with artillery <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> I mean, the, the reason they put the cannons in, apparently, was when they were recording this album, they were in London and, you know, they were watching the telly when the Royal Wedding was on while they were rehearsing mm. and 
They saw all cannons, that'd be good. <laughs> Let's bunk some of those in. They know mm. their crowd, mm. you know, and they distill things down to simplicities. So many metal lyrics at this period were full of sort of nonsense. ACDC, mm. really, they could have read out, I don't know, um, the manual for some new capacitors or something. It's just like, mm. it, it's, it's pure, it's right down to electricity cars and, and energy and power almost seen as abstract concepts almost in some in, in some acdc lyrics it, it's rock yeah. and roll yeah taken to this sort of abstracted um place where mm. it doesn't really make much sense but as a kid it's pure pure adrenaline and that's what yeah. you want from rock and roll at the time i like everyone else had a metal mate yeah, hey yeah. up jake wherever you are oh, yeah. he tried to get me into acdc and he played me this song and he said wait till you hear this <laughs> The cannons bit, and it was like, and I nearly wavered. It was like, oh, actually, that's really good. Mm. I really approve. But we don't get to see it on top of the pops, which is a damn shame. It is a damn shame. But truth be told, ACDC at this point, they don't need the help of top of the pops. Um, no. You know, AC, no. top of the pops need ACDC perhaps a little bit, but not mm. the other way around. Anything else to say about this? The only thing I can stress is, yeah, Power Rage is the best album. Highway Tower is a fucking amazing record. I, I consider if you don't have them, you're bereft of knowledge about rock and roll music and why it means so much. So the following week, for those about to rock, stayed at number 15 and would get no further. The follow-up, Guns for Hire, got to number 37 in November of 1983, and they'd have 11 more top 40 hits throughout the 80s and early 90s. But their biggest hit on the singles charts came in 2013, when a live version of Highway to Hell got to number 4 in December of that year. Mm. Uh, So in closing, I would like to add this quote in. My first conscious decision with music was when I heard Back in Black by ACDC and I was sold. ACDC always were, are and will be the greatest rock and roll band in the world. Nobody will beat them. Fuck your stones. Fuck your Beatles. Fuck all your white stripes and all your new fucking bollocks. ACDC are the greatest rock and roll band ever. Bon Scott first and then Brian. The spake, the great Chris Needham. <laughs> <laughs> I knew uh, halfway through that. Yeah. Yeah. I thought you were going to say Keir Starmer then for some reason, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. ACDC are 
about 10 places to number 15. Well, last Sunday, the 4th of July, there was great celebrations right across the United States. It was Independence Day. Let's see how Jonathan King celebrated as he goes through the Billboard chart. Kid! Standing amongst a smattering of zoo wankers and actual real-life people has to remind us that we're four days past the 4th of July because British people still haven't cowered before the might of American cultural power just yet as he informs us that we're about to be treated to another <laughs> instalment of Jonathan King's Cuntertainment USA. <sighs> Okay. David, me and Neil have already had to deal with one of these, so come on, tell us, how did you feel about this sort of thing at the time? I didn't care for it, it wasn't the America that I wanted, um, and um, Jonathan King, I mean he had that whole business, I mean the next, like, like Prince Charles meeting Jimmy Savile, looking at Jimmy Savile, and mm. thinking that, you know, yeah, he's a perfectly sound, decent bloke. Um, yes. I mean, sometimes you really can judge a book by its cover, can't you? you, know, when you <laughs> yes. Barbara Carton or something like that. I think I think I know what to expect here. You know, like call me prejudiced, but I think I'll give this a swerve. And I mean, he looks like what he is, does Jonathan mm. King? Um, and you know, that's possibly appearances ist. Mm. But yeah, this light to again, it's that sort of transatlanticism. I mean, I don't think that Jonathan King was at all a Reaganite. In fact, I do remember him doing one of these broadcasts in which he was assuring us that, um, you mm. know, you, you, you might be fearing that Ronald Reagan's going to get elected, but um, and that would be a dreadful thing because it would be him and George Plastic Man Bush. But I think it was safe to say that Jimmy Carter will win the 1980 um, presidential oh. election. Thanks, Jonathan. Um, but it just feels like the sort of, yeah, the famism, the transatlanticism about all of this. I mean, I guess there is a sort of a closer relationship, you know, post-Freddie Laker and all of that between the two continents. But I, I just feel like we're getting the shitty end of the stick of it all, you know. Um, Especially through this conjure. I mean, what joy is this man given anybody ever? Yeah, yeah. Mm. I mean, even doing this for chart music, I felt such a familiar feeling mm. whenever this... <laughs> cunt appears on anything it's just you start feeling these precious seconds of your life mm. just swirling away from you into an unrecoverable void yeah yeah um, whenever he appears on screen and so it proves in this and this is the thing you know we always talk about like there being half an hour every week you know there's just sliver of entertainment that's kind of relevant to our pop lives but of course in the end it's not even half an hour it's quite often it's only no. about 10 minutes or something like that because there's all of this to wade through and he gives us a bit of a fucking history lesson at the beginning doesn't he oh mm. yes because mm. that's just what you want in top of the pops mm. Definitely, yeah. that's why I tuned in. <laughs> yeah, but c- come on, chaps, let's not moan. It's America in 1982, isn't it? So, <laughs> Africa, Bambata, Tom Tom Club, exactly, Prince, yeah. uh, Grandmaster yeah. Flash in the Furious Five, Rick James, oh, this will be fucking good. Ooh. Bring it on. <laughs> Two hundred and seven years ago, this was British soil. Two hundred and six years ago, America declared its independence, and they're still celebrating that with various guns going off, parades, and so on. However, the British influence on music is still pretty strong in the American charts. Haircut one hundred and Kim Wilder slowing down, lower down the charts. But you'll notice that Fleetwood Mac have jumped from twenty-two to twelve, and Tainted Love by Soft Soul goes from eleven to nine. And at number seven, Juice Newton with Love's Been a Little Bit Hard on Me. Rather like these guns. We are whipped over to a very boring part of New York 
as someone dressed up as a revolutionary war type does some bugling. And as the camera pans back, we discover King dressed and looking like Simon Bates after a night spent sleeping in a skip, standing in front of some cannons. He reminds us about that war we lost as the cannons roar, sadly pointed away from him. And then he tells us that a load of singles we rinsed late last year are finally showing up on the American charts. But never mind that, because here comes Love's Been a Little Bit Hard on Mare by Juice Newton. Mm. Born in New Jersey in 1952, Judy K. Newton spent her college years in California and had a go at being a folk singer, eventually for in the country rock band Juice Newton and Silver Spur in the early 70s. After middling success, the band split up in 1977 and Newton began a solo career. And a year later, she had a moderate hit in America with a cover of Bonnie Tyler's It's a Heartache, while a song that she'd co-written, Sweet Sweet Smile, was covered by The Carpenters. In 1981, she put out a cover of the 1968 Merrily Rush single, Angel of the Morning, which sold over a million copies in the USA, got to number four on the Billboard chart, and got to number 43 over here in May of that year. This is the follow-up to The Sweetest Thing I've Ever Known, which got to number seven in America late last year and did arse all over here. <laughs> it's also the lead-off cut from her new LP, Quiet Lies, and it features Andrew Gold himself on guitar and backing vocals. And this episode screeches <laughs> to a halt, doesn't it? <laughs> Fucking hell. Let's talk about the 4th of July bollocks Guys. for a start, because that meant nothing I then. I mean, no. this is it. As, as Neil said, this is, you know, this isn't Michael Portillo's great train journeys or something like that. It's fucking top <laughs> no. of the pops. Get on with it. Yeah, we don't need to be told about a war that we fucking lost. <laughs> well, yeah, then. Well, I used to hate that. When I first started going on the internet, I got involved in this uh, internet forum in like the late 90s that was uh, kind of like American sports themed. I was the only non-American on, right. the, on the thing. And I'd get non-stop shit from fucking morons saying, oh, you lost that war, dude, and uh, <laughs> you scoreboard on you and all this kind of stuff. And I'd just say, well, number one, I wasn't there, so I don't give a fuck. Number two... A load of people telling the British royal family to fuck off. Good on them. <laughs> what a shame we haven't done that yet. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I mean, crucially, a lot of British people telling the British royal family to fuck off. That's the thing. I mean, Americans yeah. winning that war. It's not exactly what happened. But I mean, mm. you know, Jonathan King is a time sponge, man. Um, and, and yeah, this opening section. Yeah. What you said, Al, about the cannons not being pointed at him. Gutted. <laughs> but anyway, this this thing here. I mean, this would be like Solid Gold or American Bandstand devoting five minutes to the latest British videos, and mm. and we gave them the oldest swinger in town by Fred Wedlock or <laughs> fucking Fan Dabby Dozy by the Crankies mm. over an abattoir video. I mean, no offence to Juice Newton, but what the fuck is she doing here, man? She's about as comfortable on this episode of Top of the Pops, as if she'd be if she'd just walked into the men's toilets at half-time at a third-division football ground. It's like, Juice, sorry, Doc, no, this isn't for you. Go, no, go. The thing is, this this persists to this day. This this thing that, 
You know, when I was trying to research Juice Newton, because I'd never heard of her nope. before watching mm. this, you know, and it, no. it, 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 what you get is a lot of people saying, why was she never a big star in the UK? You know, how, how inexplicable is her lack of success in the UK? Mm. Look, we don't... Because of this! Well, mm. we don't care about this shit. I mean, it's like, you know, this still the desire to get the UK into American mainstream country music persists. You know, Whispering Bob Harris, the enemy of pop, he yeah. had his own country show on Radio 2 a while Did he back. Know? And, you know, on a weekly basis, he was moaning about why this stuff wasn't big. You know, bar certain members of the Birmingham line dancing community, nobody gives a <laughs> fuck about this <laughs> stuff. And by no. the way, I'm not just making it up about Birmingham line dancers. I wanted to check out if my idea about Birmingham being the Texas of England is true. <laughs> so, I, <laughs> so the other day I was looking for line dancing clubs in Birmingham and I found Four. Now, come on now. Mm. Um, Jesus. Oh, yeah, you've got Dancing Tonight Line Dancing Club. You've got Bobby Sue's. You've got John's Jive. And you've got Smoky Mountain Country Music Club, all in the... Uh, well, Grand where's the Grand... Smoky Mountain <laughs> in Birmingham, man? <laughs> well, I looked at the Google map of it outside. It just looked like some sort of warehouse, basically. Well, not even a warehouse. Oh. It's like Norman Fletcher starting that cowboy club. Yes. In, in <laughs> <laughs> there was a bloke who, next door to my best mate, uh, who was into all that kind of stuff. Mm. And every Sunday afternoon, while my mate and his family were settling down to tuck into something traditional and British, all mm. they'd hear is the cunt next door firing his guns in the air and <laughs> whooping and and yelling. And at the mm. same time, on Central News, there was a, a news story about a bloke who uh, dressed up as a Native American and spent a lot of time in a teepee in his back garden. <laughs> Mm. And the bloke next door had a right moan about it to uh, my mate's dad saying, look at this cunt here. Who the fuck could do something as stupid as that? <laughs> While he's dressed up as a fucking cowboy. Mm. Really That's the thing. The, the, you know, we need that imagery in a sense to get into it. The, the, this is why stuff like Juice Newton remains stubbornly kind of unloved over here. Mm. I think to an extent it's down to our perceptions in this country of country music. I mean, we take yeah. some of the music seriously, but for it to become pop music to us, it has to contain a bit of gimmickry. So it has to contain songs about gambling or poverty or the mm. novelty of Kenny Rogers' beard or, or Dolly Parton's tits or whatever. Ray Stevens' The Streak. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think this is unique to England, you know. Mm. Irish and Scottish friends of mine are far more likely to have grown up listening to country pop regularly yeah. Um, yeah. rather than the sort of Johnny Cash, Dolly Parton records that we all have. Whereas to us, you know, in England, listening to country is a, is a bigger crossing of the racial tracks than listening to reggae or soul or mm. bungra music, you know. Mm. And, and this, Juice Newton, she's not even got any of that cowboyish gimmickry. It's just main, no. mainstream pop, really, with a country twist. And why the fuck yeah. would we be interested in that? With a twang. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I paid close, close attention at this point, you know, to the charts. And this, if I even knew this existed, um, I forgot it did. I mean, I may have missed this episode or just gone for a slash during this particular segment or something like that. <laughs> nah, you were watching Jimmy Greaves, weren't you? <laughs> well, could well, yeah, I was all geared up for that, no, you know, possibly as well. But um, Willing the Germans on, no doubt, David. Oh, 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 no, 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 not at all, no. I was an absolute um, Germanophobe, that, that, that really? tedious, right. strutting Schumacher, good grief, no. That <laughs> uh, took me a long while to recover from that, actually. Um, yeah, definitely, no. I was a, very much a Francophile this night. Um, if, if I saw it, if I was, it just evaporated. I couldn't even muster the... Um, 
as much as I can't now, really, to be honest, I can't yeah. really muster the words or the energy to say anything about it. It, it is <laughs> just nondescript. It's fucking cat shit, isn't it, this? I mean, the only thing that I... I'm trying to make notes from it. You know, it's pretty much a blank page, and then I just thought there's... Looking at some of the video and, and, and whatever, they, there's nothing worse in this world than a slightly new-waved influenced American from the early 80s. Mm. That's all I get in terms of, like, you know, the sort of the attire that people were wearing in, oh, yes. you know, in the kind of video and stuff. Also, that weird video, it's a bit like that sort of Dangerous Brothers type vibe. Yes, it is. It? With yeah. Yeah. I mean, so. it mainly <laughs> consists of Juice Newton and a band who are the textbook definition of serving suggestion. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, which one did you hate the most out of that band? I think it was the one who was properly new waved up i.e. Yeah. non-flared trousers and a skinny tie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's what I'm talking about, yeah. A horrible man, definitely. Yeah, And um, it's interspersed with clips of her being severely and repeatedly injured by a thick ponce of a boyfriend. Yeah, mm. yeah. I mean, we see him picking her up outside her house and then slamming the car door onto her mm. leg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He then goes on to accidentally whack her in the face with her own crutch as he gives her some mm. flowers. And then he accidentally pushes her wheelchair over a cliff. And mm. that was... Have you seen the whole video? Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I mean, it's it... like a fucking public information film, that wheelchair <laughs> yeah. going off on a cliff. It's really fucking graphic. <laughs> and she ends up with uh, her legs wide open in a full body cast in hospital. As I say, it's not quite done with the Dangerous Brothers panache, though. You know, there is no, an art to no, this kind really of um, morbid slapstick, and uh, I don't think. Uh... <laughs> I mean, this is for mums, isn't it? This is the reason why I say the mums have, have not done well out of this episode so far. So mm. this is this is for them, maybe so. Yeah, but what mums are going to be into this? But it's just a litany of domestic violence, accidentally <laughs> or otherwise. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Which goes well with country music, I suppose. Yeah. Well, I suppose. You know, there's always had that humorous, you know, Cletus the slack-jawed yokel type yes. vibe, I suppose. You know, like, What's that one on The Simpsons? It's like, you know, came home one night, caught my wife in bed with my best friend. You bit her? Uh-huh. Bit him, too. <laughs> That's funny. No, that's a joke. So yeah, this is this is what America's got to offer at the moment. Yeah, it's not enticing, is it? Great. Mm. I think even the mums would have felt, you know, is this what we get? It's like a shit Mother's Day card or something. <laughs> so love's been a little bit hard on me. Ended up doing fuck all over here, and rightly so. <laughs> and she never bothered our charts again. Mm. Yeah, Good. Quite right. Next. These ridiculous things are dealy bobbers. Everybody's wearing them all over America. But back to the charts. Going up from seven to six is the Daz Band with Let It Whip. And jumping from nine to five is a future number one record. By Survivor, it's from the movie Rocky Three. It's called The Eye of the Tiger. We cut back to King, standing outside a cinema, who introduces the UK to... Dealey Bobbers and Chaps, the 80s have truly begun, man. The, the age of Aquarius sort yeah, it starts of. starts with the Nadir, basically. Him wearing fucking Dealey Bobbers. Yeah, the age of Nadirius, <laughs> if you will. Mm. I mean, King is a spiritual Dealey Bopper, so I don't know why Very it's kind so. of like, you know, in this sort of like you know, detached <laughs> sophistication and superiority. You know, you are a Dealey Bopper. You know, there was, there was good 80s mm. and bad 80s, as far as I was concerned. There was a very sharp divide. And good 80s was ABC, the mm. Associates, Scrutiny Politi, you know, early simple minds in the early eighties, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and bad eighties, and it was zoo wankers and dealy boppers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm. And crucially, Jonathan King telling us that all Americans are wearing dealy yeah, boppers yeah, yeah, on yeah, an yeah. almost constant yeah. basis. 
Yeah, well, there's loads of people milling about, <laughs> walking past yeah. him, and none of them are wearing No, they're all them. walking their pet rocks, but, you know, they don't have dilly boppers. Yes. <laughs> Invented in Los Angeles in 1981, dilly bobbers were a headband with two springy baubles attached to them and were the brainchild of Stephen Askin, who had already come to prominence in America by marketing Ayatollah Khomeini dartboards during the Iran hostage crisis. After making a load of them in his kitchen, he took them to the Los Angeles Street Fair in the summer of 1981 and sold all 800 of them at $5 each. He sold the invention onto the Ace Novelty Company at the end of the year, who called them Dealey Bobbers. By the summer of 1982, an estimated 2 million of the fuckers had been sold by Ace Novelty, with the market awash with cheap imitations. And this is their first appearance <laughs> on British television. And somewhere out there, Dave Lee Travis is stroking a thoughtful beard, oh, isn't yeah. he? When I see Dealey Boppers, and I do call them Dealey Boppers, because I'm damn convinced that's mm-hmm. what they were called mm-hmm. over here. I immediately associate them with Daily yeah, Travis. Yeah, with characters. Mm. Yes. Mm. Total Colin Hunts. Yeah. And Jonathan King Wareham is a nice start, in a way, yeah. isn't it, to the phenomenon? Yeah, set the tone. <laughs> yeah. He then reminds us that Americans get films ages before we do, as he introduces Eye of the Tiger by Survivor. Formed in Chicago in 1977, Survivor were a rock band formed by Jim Petterick, the former lead singer of the Ides of March, who had a number 31 hit in the UK with Vehicle in June of 1970. After forming and then dissolving the Jim Petterick band, he intended to go into radio jingle work, but was talked into giving it another go by his road manager. So he formed Survivor, who were almost immediately picked up by Atlantic Records. Their first LP, Survivor, flopped in 1980, but the follow-up a year later, Premonition, spawned the single's Poor Man's Son, which got to number 33 on the Billboard chart. Later that year, Sylvester Stallone was wrapping up the filming of his next film, Rocky Three, and he knew exactly what he wanted for the theme tune. Another One Bites the Dust by Queen, which he had inserted into the preliminary cut of the film. But when John Deacon knocked him back, Stallone left a message on Petterick's answering machine saying he liked the working-class rock stylings of Poor Man's Son and wanted something similar for the title theme of Rocky Three. And by God, this is it. <laughs> It's not available in the UK yet, but over in America it's jumped 10 places from number 19 to number 9, and as the video we've come to associate with the single isn't available, Top of the Pops are giving us another film clip of Stallone over-emoting in a boxing ring, while Lawrence Turode, a former bouncer in a nightclub called Dingbat's Discotheque, turned tough man boxing champion, turned bodyguard for Michael Jackson and Muhammad Ali, glares on at ringside, displaying regretful compassion for the imbecilic. Mm. Oh, boys, we're bound to run across the official version of the video at some point. So let's put that mm-hmm. aside and focus on this because, once again, the BBC are practically running an advert for a film, aren't they? Yeah, they are. Mm. And, the, the, and, and to be fair, the video makes the film look pretty damn good. Um, yes, it, it really does. does. But, you know, much like with the film, uh, when I did get to see it, it, it let's be honest, it's clubber lang you want to see. Mm. Um, you know, we're, we're a yes. way off 
at this point, 82. We're away off, you know, Mr. T serial and the, and the Mr. T cartoon series, which I actually feel is his greatest work. Um, oh, yeah. What, when he manages a um, diverse gymnastics team. Yeah, well, not only that, he punches a shark, he throws an alligator about, he does loads he does, of stuff. Yes. It's meant. Um, I would recommend the, the compilation on YouTube, by the way, of his moral messages at the end of the cartoon. Or oh, be somebody or be somebody's fool. <laughs> yes. Homespun That's common sense homilies on the importance of not bragging and not moaning and basically, you know, don't be bad, be good. Um, but he was the most compelling thing about Rocky Three, Mr. T. Yes, he was. And this is the first time we get to see Mr. T, isn't it? Mm. First Dealey Boppers, yep. now this. Fucking hell. That America, eh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. But Rocky Three is also the first time that we see Hulk Hogan, so mm. a cultural monolith. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, I liked Mr. T, I think, from things like Top of the Pops and looking at because obviously this is way before A-Team as well. But mm. I was finding something with the Rocky movies because um, I was taken to see Rocky, probably the first one, really young, and I did watch Rocky 2 as well. So I was looking yeah. forward to Rocky 3. I felt I enough to watch this kind of stuff now but i was detecting something i can't i didn't like mr t's defeat um mm. in, in this film you know and the way the film i mean obviously you know it's it's about the great white hope all of the rocky films are yes. but the way that rocky three in particular it kind of rewards carl weathers for being the right type of black boxer mm. you know giving it up for the yeah. white savior and clubber lang gets demonized for being angry basically yeah. <laughs> yes yeah. for being an angry black man i mean by the by if you really want to open up a can of indignant worms and trigger <laughs> white americans just suggest somewhere online that the rocky films might be racist they really oh, do not God, like racist as fuck just as somebody that was yeah. kind of conscious of like african-american culture and a you know keep boxing fan i mean it's, it's just a ludicrous exercise in wishful thinking <laughs> yeah you know the yeah, whole completely. thing it's chuck wepner i think it was a guy called chuck wepner who went a long way with ali yes and he took him all the way and i think that's what inspired him you know like you know perhaps a white man could yeah. beat up a black man you know and it's just that's all, yeah that's all there is to it <laughs> yeah 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 i mean look stallone in a weird way He's a good popular artist. My favourite of his is, by the mm. way, the fever dream of action cinema that is Cobra. But, um, but Rocky Three, <laughs> I remember that being the first one, I think, where I started detecting the faint racism of Rocky films and having mm. a big problem with it. Mm. Yeah. It really yeah. does trigger a lot of Rocky fans and boxing fans if you dare to suggest that the Rocky series is in any way racist. I suppose by Rocky Four, it's just entered cartoonism. I didn't, Rocky Five, don't bother with. Um, Rocky Balbao I've not bothered watching although I was amused that um, Carl Weathers wanted to be in it um, <laughs> Sylvester Stallone pointed out hold on a minute you were killed in the fourth one um, and because Carl <laughs> Weathers got so pissed off about that that he wasn't allowed to be in Rocky Balbao he could have been a ghost yeah as a ghost or something who knows he refused to let um, Sylvester Stallone use any of the Apollo footage from any of the films yeah because if you have a ghost box that are you going <laughs> to land on it <laughs> you know what I mean yeah it's a host of difficulties mm. isn't it mm. but yeah Rocky 3 yeah. the first one where I sort of start detecting that there's something up with this series. But that said, I mean, yeah, talking about the video, you do have to sort of talk about Survivor at the same time. Yes, you do. It's a good intro, this tune. It does its job, mm. um, do Survivor. Lyrically tells the story of the film without really mentioning any any specifics, which frankly would have been ace. I would have loved to have heard the words Rocky and Apollo in these in these lyrics. Uh, you know, when they do the exact same trick in Rocky Four and they do Burning Heart, mm. um, that film, they do actually mention the sort of you know the socio 
geopolitical <laughs> import of Rocky IV. You know, there's that line, seems our freedoms up against the ropes. Mm. But, um, you know, this song, although it inhabits the same sound world and dynamics of something like Stevie Nicks' Edge of Seventeen, whereas Stevie's a totally compelling lyricist and singer, the chap from Survivor isn't. Isn't, mm. no. It, it is what you'd expect from a band pretty much made up of jingle writers. It's yeah. rock produced and sheened to the point where nothing really grabs you and everything snags your esophagus a little bit. It's got that weird sense of this is meant to be heavy while sounding really fucking weedy yes. once it gets going. You know, but the intro's good. I, I can't deny it. it's a good build of the film. It's used cleverly in the film. But Survivor don't really care about rock and roll. They're Tim Pan Alley types, not really rock and rollers. So I kind of applaud the mm. craft but loathe the sentiment. But the film itself, you know, I was having problems with that as well. Perhaps, you know, the first time I had problems with the Rocky series is definitely Rocky 3. Yeah, Mm. yeah. It's really funny though, because Clubber Lang obviously heralds the arrival of Tyson. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And also, when a white heavyweight boxing champion finally comes round, he's a bit nearer to Ivan Drago than Rocky Balboa, isn't he? Yes, indeed, yes. Mm. There was articles in the Village Voice and places like that when the first Rocky came out, suggesting, you know, this is all about white working class people feeling that black people have been given too much progress and this is about claiming something back not many people picked up on the racism of rocky three at the time it came out mm. um it was very triumphalist when it came out but yeah it, it's pretty blatant i haven't watched the film for a while i must give it another viewing but as i recall mr t is given this character club lang Clubberlang is he's like a mandingo type figure of fear mm. and kind of mm. hypersexuality and and all the rest of it it's a real coalescing of a lot of all a lot of stereotypes and he's throughout the film I think contrasted with Apollo Apollo learns to acquiesce to the great white hope learns to actually help the great mm. white hope you know and is a businessman and all the rest of it um Clubberlang is this angry young black man and consequently he's demonized throughout the movie um and I remember feeling distinctly uncomfortable about that. Yeah, it's a definite vibe, good black yeah, man and bad so. black man, definitely. Yeah, it's interesting that um, another one bites the dust. Which I don't think that would have worked particularly well. I think no, it's too much of a not cliche. At all. No. I actually think, I mean, I can't stand this song. Um, I once heard, I think mean, one of my worst nights ever, I think, was in Leeds at some pub. And it was one of those, it was dying, you know, when the London Symphony Orchestra kind of produced hits of the day to a kind of little 4 4 disco beat or whatever. Did some version of Eye as a Tiger. And I just felt so <laughs> oh. sorry for the players in this. You know, they come into this world to play. <laughs> Bartok and Stravinsky and Schoenberg, and they're playing fucking Survivor, the poor sods. But I actually think it kind of does its job in terms of, like, mm. capturing the sort of cheapness, the sort of cheap emotion, the sort of contrived adrenaline or whatever of the Rocky film. I actually think it's a kind of a decent match. Um, my mm. beef with... One of my beefs with Rocky, again, as a boxing fan, is just the awfulness of the... the ridiculousness of the boxing scenes. I mean, they're risable. Oh, mm. yeah, yeah. fistically over-exit, doesn't he, Stallone? Absolutely. I mean, it's ridiculously. At a time when boxing was fucking amazing. Yeah, absolutely. I know. And then you've got this nonsense. You know, it's pretty much like World Wrestling Federation stuff. Really. You know, Very much so, yeah. Three or four scenes in which people, boxers, are knocked clean off their feet. I can recall <laughs> yeah. this happening yeah, you know, yeah, like in yeah. the same round, you know, and it's, it's like... You know, with roundhouse punches or whatever, I only saw that once in heavyweight boxing. It was George Foreman in 1973 against Joe Frazier, where he actually does land an uppercut, and you see Frazier actually just off his feet. And this, you know, this is happening on a sort of four or five times per round basis in this film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a time of Hagler and Hearns and Leonard and Duran and, oh. Oh, no, yeah, absolutely, yeah, I know. 
and sublime. And these feel, you know, these are wonderful things to watch. You know, these, and Robert these, Lindsay. The idea that this is some idealised version of what boxing ought to be, and that the real thing is a bit boring, is absolutely ridiculous. Mm. This is mm. risable. Mm. Also, your boxers, put your fucking dukes up. You know, and it's just like you know, people, mm. you know, the way that like the, 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 you know, the fights sway back and forth, and no one has any idea of like how to sort of conduct a defence. It, it's just just insulting, really. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's kind of insulting that, you know, Stallone, when he's making the Rocky films, he seeks out people like Joe Frazier for advice and stuff like that. Yeah. And, and, and it's not Joe Frazier who ends up with a statue in Philadelphia. It's no. fucking Sylvester Stallone. Do you know mm. what I mean? Fucking it's- Philadelphia. What the fuck is wrong with you? Mm. But this song, I mean, it does become just the general kind of motivational anthem, applicable and usable yes. in all kinds of different scenarios. You oh, know, when, yes. when Mike Walker has his short, unhappy reign at Everton, he gets them to ditch Z cars in favour of Eye of the Tiger. Oh, <laughs> it doesn't work for them. <laughs> you know, but it's that kind of fucking song, isn't it? Mm. I think I've only seen one Rocky film in my life, which was the original one, when the BBC showed it after the uh, England-Germany semi-final in 1996. Mm -hmm. And I just remember sitting there, pissed up, absolutely maudlin, just looking at it and going, what the fuck are you going on about miracles come true? Mm. Fuck off. (laughs) So I've Mm. never watched another Rocky film, but... After seeing this, I don't have to see Rocky film. I, I, I get everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, mm. you completely mm. do. It's a really good little capsule of a film. Mm. The thing that jumped out at me was the uh, the images of Stallone all over the magazines and newspapers, particularly the London Examiner, <laughs> uh, which reports on another Rocky victory alongside uh, a news story <laughs> where the headline is Chelsea's friends there. <laughs> <laughs> which probably had more to do with their supporters than anything the team was doing yeah, in yeah. 1982. Mm. World of cricket and the tantalising headline, Eagle Farm Today. <laughs> I'd love to know what that's about. Well spotted. Yeah, but the, film, the films are weird because the films are this weird mix of kind of like almost kitchen sink drama. But... The boxing scenes, they're, they're for children. I mean, yeah. there's more realistic action sequences than fucking Scooby-Doo or something. Yeah, absolutely. But great advert, BBC. Yeah, they've done a good job here. They've done the film well. Yes. But immediately, the most captivating thing is not Sly, it's Mr. T. And We want to know more about that guy. And as time will tell, we do get to know more about that guy. I mean, the only good thing I've got to say about Survivor is, uh, and this song, is that Eye of the Tiger was the first song I ever played on Guitar Hero about 15 (laughs) years ago. So, you know, I've got a bit of residual fondness for it. I used to love Guitar Hero. Did you partake, chaps? I I didn't partake. I have heard, though, that this song is a particular joy to play on Guitar Hero. Oh, you know what? It's that chord just after he sings Eye of the Tiger. You know, know, the bit that goes, it's the... Oh, yeah, yeah. And the first time I hit that chord, it's like, oh, Oh man, the power of rock compels me. <laughs> and the best thing you could ever do with Guitar Hero is have a load of people around and make sure there's one or two musos who are sitting off to the side refusing to get involved mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with their arms folded and faces like smacked asses. Oh, it's not real musicianship, you know. <laughs> I used to love that. Mm. I used to just stare at them while I was playing and go, look at me, I'm a guitarist, everyone. <laughs> it was like having your mate who's a fucking carjacker coming around watching you play Grand Theft Auto and going, oh no, it's not like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a total misrepresentation of the art mm. of stealing cars and hitting people. <laughs> and uh, King's going to give himself a pat on the back and, and claim that he introduced Survivor. <laughs> yeah, you get Survivor, Genesis. Chalk another victory up for JK. <laughs> Two weeks later, 
eye of the tiger would run all the way to the top of the marble steps of the American chart, deposing this week's number one, and would stay there for six weeks, eventually being battered to the floor by Abracadabra by the Steve Miller Band. On the last day of this month, it entered the chart at number 54, rocketed 25 places to number 29, then soared 23 places to number 6 and stalked the number 2 slot for a fortnight before taking down Come On Eileen and spending four weeks at number 1 over here, keeping Save a Prayer by Duran Duran, Private Investigations by Dire Straits and The Bitterest Pill by The Jam off number 1 before yielding the floor to pass the Dutch air by musical youth. Oh, mate. The follow-up, American Heartbeat, got to number 17 in America, but didn't get anywhere near our chart, and they had to rely on Stallone again for their second and final UK hit, when Burning Heart from Rocky IV got to number 5 in March of 1986. The single was nominated for an Oscar, losing to Up Where We Belong, and was nominated for a Grammy, losing to Always On My Mind by Willie Nelson, but received the ultimate accolade when it was covered by Cilla Black in Surprise, <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> have you seen that, Neil? Oh, yeah, thanks for sending that through. Yeah, you will me. <laughs> And like many singles of its ilk, it experienced a strange afterlife last decade when all manner of American Republican cunt politicians were sued by the band mm. for using their song to whip up banjo twanging inbreds at their rallies. <laughs> <laughs> Sticking at number four this week is Asia with Heat of the Moment and jumping over it from number five to number three is John Cougar and Hurt So Good. We cut back to a long shot of the Statue of Liberty while King leans awkwardly on a rail like people do when they're having a photo taken and think they're going to be out of shot. He tells us some more chart info that we're not that interested in before introducing Hurt So Good by John Cougar. Born in Seymour, Indiana in 1951, John Mellencamp was a college student and Roxy Music fanatic who played in the local glam band Trash and left his wife and child behind to pursue a music career in New York in 1974. A year later, he was discovered by Tony DeFries, the founder of Main Man, who had just finished being David Bowie's manager, signed him up to MCA, and he was immediately rushed into the studio to record his debut LP, Chestnut Street Incident. But it wouldn't come out for another year, and when it did, Mellencamp discovered that DeFries thought his name was too Germanic and had it changed to Johnny Cougar. Mm. After being dropped by MCA after the LP only sold 12,000 copies, and a follow-up LP that DeFries refused to shop around to a new label, The Two Parted Ways. However, Mellencamp was picked up by Billy Gaff, Rod Stewart's manager and the owner of Reva Records in 1978, and he spent a year in London under his wing, changing his name to John Cougar in 1979. 
This is the lead-off cut from his fifth LP, American Fool, which features Mick Ronson on guitar and backing vocals. It came out last April, and it's the single that has finally put him over in America, having jumped nine places to number 20 this week. And here's the video, which was shot in Medora, Indiana. Mm. A place that's uh, currently undergoing a population boom at the minute, chaps. Mm. The last census has the population at a whole 853. <laughs> it's now 635. Somehow they didn't manage to capitalise on the uh, on the tourist value of it being the site of a John Cougar video. <laughs> Mm. It's a horrible video. Oh, is it? Um, yeah. Oh, it's fucking just, awful. It's vile. Mm. There's one moment where he cakewalks kind of between these lecherous pensioners on bikes who are pouring yes. at his two kind of rock chick dollies got with him. It's vile. Mm. On chains as well. Oh, yeah. God, it's horrible. I mean, just the awful smugness of it. Yeah, just running the gauntlet, you know, these appreciative, as you say, sort of um, ageing Hell's Angels. Yeah. The fucking worst-looking Hell's Angel gang in the whole of America, man. <laughs> yeah. They're the Hell's Angel version of the orphans, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you go over there and knock over their bikes in a domino effect thing, and yeah, what are you going to do? You look shit. But I, I first became aware of, um, well, it was, it was you know, Johnny Cougar, I think, in an advert in Melody Maker in the late 1970s. Yes, well, yeah, let's, let's address this right now, David. As far as I'm concerned, there was only one Johnny Cougar, and he is the kind of the seminal wrestling matman of Tiger and Scorcher fame, you know, a walking compendium of, like, um, Native American cliches, you know. Hey, hey, sir. That's Johnny Cougar. You, you're heat big cunt is what you are yes exactly David <laughs> yeah I mean you might as well call yourself Billy Dane or Skid Solo yeah I just thought it was a pretty good name yes yeah. you know yes, Roy Race it's just you know, it's yeah. just not on and then also or Hot Shot Hamish <laughs> absolutely yeah with his song you know when he talked about how well, it just came to me it just seemed like a pretty good title it's already been done Millie Jackson you know mm-hmm. had a hit with this yeah, you yeah. know the idea just just just, just absolute thief yeah the song's awful terrible substones bollocks the first thing well the second thing after what david correctly said what a knob end he looks (laughs) he's got this dead type black leather waistcoat on with a bandana around his neck and bizarrely he's got cream colored chaps around his jeans which is fucking thick i mean no chap wearer am i but surely the whole point of chaps is to keep the dirt off your trousers so why would you wear light colored ones that's no, well, uh, doesn't I work don't like think that. He's, he, he's not quite worked his look out yet. I still think he's no. got a bit of glamness to him from his early years. But yeah. what he's aiming for here is really something a bit more blue collar, and it ain't working out for him. No, um, at all. No. He, he looks like the worst dressed homosexual <laughs> in the Castro, doesn't he? <laughs> Which was Fred Wedlock's ill-advised yeah, follow-up yeah. to his one and only hit. <laughs> Yeah, very much so. He looks awful. He sounds terrible. And as yeah. is the case with much of this bit, this whole Jonathan King bit, you just sat there, a British kid at home, just thinking, when are the charts coming back on? Yeah. 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 Our, yeah. Charts. Our charts. And why haven't, you know... The proper there's charts. There's so many records they could have played, man, that they mm. could have played. The video consists of him doing a turn with a band of absolute fucking American egg and chippers mm. before he leads the crappiest motorcycle gang in history and then he walks down Main Street with two women who are clearly not gossip <laughs> and they pretend to enjoy it while they avoid being groped by the rubbish bikers. This whole segment really feels like there's some sort of cultural necessity for like American white rock and pop that we may not have considered before to yeah. be promoted in the UK like yeah, it's almost like yeah. a, some sort of charitable work that's required. Yes, because we're not exactly. interested. It's shit. <laughs> you know, absolutely. But it's like, won't you give Johnny Cougar a hearing? You know, no. Somewhere 
Johnny Cougar is waiting for your help. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. Do you consider yourself a rock and roll singer? Uh, more than an opera singer, I guess, yeah. <laughs> but, but you think rock and roll may be coming to the end of its life? Well, I think rock and roll's a dinosaur. You know, it's been around 20-some years, and I don't know what else they can do new, you know. I mean, you know, synthesizers aren't new, uh, guitars aren't new. I mean, you know, you only play DGNA so many ways, and that's it, right? If it ain't DGNA, it ain't rock and roll. Well, then what's the next phase? Next phase, I don't know. You know, if I knew, we'd I'd tell you, and we'd go out and do it and be rich, right? John Cougar, thank you very much. We're treated to an interview with Cougar where he pretty much says that rockism is dead, which a young David Stubbs would have been nodding furiously <laughs> at, no doubt. Hey, David. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I could say he, he kind of... Uh, he, he warmed me a little bit in this interview. First off, because when Jonathan King says to him, would you consider yourself a rock singer? And there are so many people um, in various sort of across the musical spectrum who would just said, "I just that's just a category. I just defy mm, all categories." Mm. Now you're obviously mm. a rock singer. And he says as much. You're more than an opera singer, you know. So I don't, you know, that kind of slightly warmed even that. And yes, of course, for his prediction that rock was dead. I mean, obviously, his own rock is stillborn and sterile. That's certainly true. But um, yeah, it's, it's reasonably kind of honest stuff. I, I did slightly warm to him as a result of that interview. But the interview does. Make- Make the entire record that we've just seen yeah. just seem entirely cynical, doesn't it? Exactly, I mean, yeah. He, yeah. he doesn't yeah. believe in any of it. It's a load of shit, and I'm just trying to turn a pound off it. <laughs> yeah. Mm. yeah, basically. Do you want to buy some dealy boppers yeah. off, man? Totally. I mean, it's just like, you know, when Frank Zappa said, jazz is not dead, it just smells funny. And, I mean, this is you know, a similar sort of thing, really. It smells funny. <laughs> but, you know, it's a video from The Heartland, mm. which is going to be shoved up her arse <laughs> over the next few mm, years. Yeah. It's just basically American long-eating, mm, isn't mm. it, this place? <laughs> <laughs> so Hurt So Good would eventually spend five weeks at number two in America, unable to dislodge Eye of the Tiger, but did fuck all over here. Right, right. <laughs> However, the follow-up, Jack and Diane, would get to number 25 in the UK in November of this year. His one and only top 40 hit as a solo artist and not even changing his name to John Cougar Mellencamp in 1983 and reverting to John Mellencamp in 1991 could help him much over Mm. here. Okay, back to the American charts. At number two is Rosanna by that fantastic band Toto. And at number one, well, a few months ago, Phil Oakey complained in the press about Top of the Pops wasting time, always looking at the American charts, so why did we do it? Well, I tell you why we do it. This week's number one in America is a record called Don't You Want Me by the Human League. You were working as a waitress in a King tells us how fantastic Toto are before taking massive offence at Phil Oakey when he spoke for the nation and said that this section of Top of the Pops is absolute cat shit and what's the fucking point of it anyway? Why do we do it, says King? Well, I'll tell you why we do it. This week's number one in America is a record called Don't You Want Me by the Human League. What the fuck is he going Mm. on about? What does that even mean? As if that proves the value of this segment, Mm. you know. And his reported complaints from Phil... They would have had a nation nodding vociferously. Oh, yeah, totally. Especially us pop kids. Yeah. Fulfill 100% correct, yeah. 
And if the charts are just awash, you know, with the British invasion stuff, then the whole section would be superfluous anyway. Yeah, no, the mm. entire purpose of the section is to, is to showcase people like Juice Newton and Johnny Cougar that no one is interested in. Phil yeah. is absolutely right. And when Phil's talking, you usually get some sense. We've already covered this single, the Christmas number one of 1981, the biggest selling single that year in the UK, and the fifth best selling single of the 80s in chart music number 49. Since then, it's been handed down to less modern and cutting-edge countries such as America, and my God, it's driven them synth-pop crazy. And this week, Don't You Want Me has shoved the piano that Paul McCartney and Stevie Wonder were sitting on right off the top of Mount Popmore and taken its rightful place as America's number one. Yes, fuck Ebony and Ivory. It's all black plastic and white plastic now, isn't it? <laughs> me and Neil have already covered this. Mm. Uh, so, David, your thoughts? I mean, this song is its like a sort of, it's more than a hit. It's like a sort of fact of life these days. It it is just absolutely preserved. Mm. But obviously at the time, I think that um, the words synth-pop were inevitably followed or preceded by the word disposable. And I think the idea that mm. they, were, they were the sort of the dealy boppers of their, um, you know, yes. of the charts or whatever. And the, the things that would truly last the ages would be the great sort of stone and metal edifices of like Prague or, or the kind of current relevant works by the Tigers of Pantang, all of which are just fallen to dust really in public memory. And what has actually endured mm. is the synth pop, it's Depeche Mode or, or Human League, you know, and here's yeah. an absolutely prime example of it. You know, that this is disposability is absolutely not yeah i think just what i love about this point of human league though is is the takeover of when you know joanne catherine susan sully when they come in and and i think that they almost force the issue maybe sort of i, don't, I think it's something that they're very kind of conscious of wanting to do that they represent themselves that they are what the human league are about they are at the absolute essence of it it's not joe callis it's not adrian on the slide it's not any mm. of the other kind of musicians that came in and out it's them they are the pop essence, the sort of the smash, you know, the sort of slightly kind of uncoordinated dancing, a certain spirit of smash hitsness of popular music in the 1980s, and that has endured right through. And they're still touring now; they're still on the road. Yeah, just the absolute durability of it, I think, is just a great mm. thing. So once again, the whole artifice of this section has been completely exposed because, hey, look, mm. here's that thing that you all bought seven, eight months ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, this is basically a section that reduces a 40-minute show to a half-hour show of relevance, really. Mm. And and look at what they could have won. Look at what they could have been playing mm. um, in yeah. the 10 minutes that we get here. When I look at the chart... Right, five minutes. Well, five minutes, okay, but... Uh, but it feels like 10. It feels like 10. When I look at the charts and when I look at the records in there, Japan, Hot Chocolate, even Dollar, fuck it, Adamant, mm. Soft Cell, Bow Wow Wow, ABC, Visage, Roxy... Just, I mean, fuck it. In fact, never mind other good records in the charts. They would have been better off just giving imagination five minutes. Just yeah. give them five minutes. Do what the fuck you like, mm. Do whatever you like. Free swim. That would have been better. <laughs> or get Jeffrey Daniel out and say, right, show us in real slow motion how you do that backslide. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So that would have been more value to the nation than yeah. this shit. Mm. So Don't You Want Me would spend three weeks at number one in America giving way to Eye of the Tiger and, as in the UK, would be their only number one in the USA. Well, we may have lost the colonies, but at least we've still got the number one record in the American charts. From Jonathan King at Independence Day Parade in New York, back to the studio. Yeah! 
A fantastic achievement that for the human league. Well, a couple of weeks ago, Jonathan King was going through the European number one, and at that time, Trio were number one in Austria and Switzerland. And now they have a hit in the UK, and here they are with Da Da Da. You don't love me, I don't love you. Aha, aha, aha. Next to a zoo wanker with all glitter in her hair that makes it look like she's been involved in some Cyberman bakake <laughs> gives the human league a pat on the back. I-, I think that woman is definitely using glitter spray, which was one yes. of the adverts that would be seen on Channel 4 in its first year and was absolutely fucking hammered to death, man. <laughs> You know the one that goes, you got to glitter, just keep the spray 18 beautiful inches away, you glitter girl. <laughs> that was on all the time. It was that mm-hmm. and them adverts for Freddie Barrett's off licenses, which mm. were fucking mad, which no one outside of London had the slightest clue what was being advertised. <laughs> it was just this middle-aged bloke gnawing on a massive bone or d- doing something <laughs> mad. Good old Channel 4. He then goes on to virtually claim full responsibility on behalf of Top of the Pops for the success of the next single, Da 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 by Trio. Formed in Bremerhaven, West Germany in 1966, McBeats were a band put together by vocalist Stefan Remier and guitarist Gert Krawinkel, who were heavily influenced by Das Roland Stonen. <laughs> After changing their name to Just Us, they became a regular feature on the North German beat combo circuit, but split up in 1969. Undeterred, Remy and Krawinkel formed a folky prog band called Kravinkel, which signed to Phillips and put out two LPs before splitting up in 1972, which led to the two of them spending the rest of the 70s as teachers. In 1979, however, they decided to have another go and recruited Peter Behrens, a veteran of the Hamburg scene who was in the krautrock band Silberbart before attending the Milan Circus School and was currently working as a clown and pantomime artist. After renting a house in a hamlet in Lower Saxony and moving in together, they pieced together their debut LP, recording it in the cellar. After shopping it around 23 different labels and being rejected by 23 different labels, they found a champion in Klaus Vormann. Yes, that Klaus Vormann, mate of the Beatles and bassist of Manfred Mann, who had seen them in concert and recommended them to his mate, who was the German A&R manager for Phonogram. After signing to Phonogram and being given Vorman as their producer, they commenced work on an LP called Trio, which came out in West Germany in October of 1981. While touring the LP around at assorted record shops across the country, they wrote and played out this song, which leaned heavily on the teenage spod lust object of the age, the Casio VL1 which was retailing in W.H. Smith at the time for £39.95, hmm. which is about 163 in today's rubbish money. <laughs> they were so knocked bandy by the response, they immediately pegged it over to Zurich to borrow Yellow Studio and knock it out as a single. 
It was put out in West Germany in the spring of 1982 and immediately shot up the charts, getting to number two, but being unable to dislodge Der Commissar by Falco and Ambition Freedom by Nicole. But it spread like wildfire through Europe, getting to number one in Switzerland and Austria and lodging itself in the top ten from Norway all the way down to that there Spain. Three weeks ago, on Top of the Pops, Jonathan King presented his segment from Madrid so he could show off that he was at the World Cup and you weren't, but also to break down the Euro charts, and they played 30 seconds of Da 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 to the UK, after which Simon Bates went so far as to say, well, we reckon at Top of the Pops that Trio, if that record was released in this country, could be a British number one. As we all know, Simon Bates's word is bond. And when it was released over here at the beginning of the month, it entered the chart at number 54. And this week it soared 24 places to number 30. And here they are in the studio with Top of the Pops pushing Das Boot out to put them over. And oh, chaps, all is well with the world again because this performance is skill on so many levels. Oh, and I don't even know where to start with it's it. It's magnificent. Isn't it, it, it just? It's one of the most memorable Top of the Pops appearances of the entire first half of the decade, I would say. Yes. Mm. On an episode where Jeffrey Daniels done his pieces, fucking hell, we're spoiled tonight. Mm. Obviously, we have to give the floor over to uh, to the rock expert, the author of Future Days, a definitive book on crowd rock, and uh, Mars by nineteen eighty, which does likewise for electronic music. Come on, David. Thank you. All right, here we go. Well, I, perhaps um, I'm going to sort of drop a bit of lukewarm water here, just based on oh. well, just based on how I felt about this at the time, because you know, I was I was pretty fierce about my music and I was actually hoping to like this more than I actually did because it was it was European and it was kind of mentioning Dada and we already touched on my passion for Dada mm. you know this is terrible Al I realise I perhaps don't have any kind of sense of humour I've always no. thought I was one of the chaps you know game for a laugh and all that you know mm. a chuckle but what happened it was like this um, I've long been an admirer of the great Dadaist sculptor poet um, Jean Arp, also known as Hans, mm. um, also his wife, Sophie Teuber Arp, um, who yeah. exhibited at the Tate Modern recently. Right. Since about 1981, I've been aware of like the Dada movement. Of, but I was listening to this Danny Baker podcast recently, and for mm. some reason he was discussing <laughs> this great artist. And the first thing he said is, he's like, his name's Hans Arp. I mean, what's funny about that? And I think, shit, that's funny, isn't it? Hands up, of course. You know, Ottawan. Hands up, me. No. Oh, my God. And in 40-odd years, I didn't get this. It never occurred to me that this is funny. So I just feel terrible. I feel like possibly, you know, as I say, I've always thought of myself as having a lighter side and all that. But I have no sense of humour at all. Um, oh, terrible, man. terrible business. But this song. Right. What's up with it, David? Why don't you like it? What the fuck's wrong with you? I don't know. Because so, obviously, with my... Why do you hate Germans? (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) I I, I love Germans. But I think, I don't know, as it kind of progresses in this kind of willfully enervated way, you know, with this kind of ticking deadpan Casio, I just think, what would Hans Arp, baby Hans Arp, have made of this? I don't (laughs) think that he would have felt that this is the true Dada spirit. There's something else that perhaps they're just sort of exploiting the reductiveness of of the Dada. Dada moniker or whatever so I felt a bit stern about that also I I just felt that at this point 
a lot of groups that were kind of operating in in a post-punk era in Germany and having this kind of sort of brutalist sort of neo-krautrock type thing going on in a sense. And mm. and all of a sudden it was getting codified as the Neue Deutsche Welle. And, right. and I always think that like this, with its kind of quirkiness, was a sign that things were just about to go wrong and we were all going to get a bit 99 red balloons any second. Mm. Oh, he's um, having a go at fucking Nana now. I know, exactly. <laughs> I know, it's terrible. I just, I don't know, I just felt a bit like, you know, when people like Nick Kershaw and, you know, and Howard Jones rocked up in 1983 and I thought, this is the end of something here. Um, so I kind of felt a little bit embittered about it on that basis, I guess. I didn't th- I thought it should have Never mind trio. I thought it should have been da da da. Daf is who I thought should have been enjoying this kind of pop. And mm-hmm. Daf at this time. Um, so you mentioned Nicole um, a little, a little bit of piece, or whatever it's called, a little piece, a little piece, a little piece. Yeah, which won the Eurovision Song Contest that year. Yes. Daf immediately came out with their own repost, Ein bisschen Krieg, a little war. You know, and I just thought that's what oh. you know, that's the stuff <laughs> to get the troops. And um, yeah, and so I, I suppose I just found all, all this, and the kind of the quirky roboticisms and all that, and I thought. No, no, Kraftwerk do that properly and more thoroughly and better. Also, you're not DAF. And so I think I kind of, sort of resented it on that basis. Yeah. Um, but obviously now you can perhaps appreciate from afar the, the strangeness of it, the audacity of it. Nevertheless, you know, perhaps I'm sort of setting, you know, like setting up high hurdles and strict standards or what have you. Um, I just suppose I can never quite get over that initial disappointment, you know. No, I can, I can completely understand that. Mm. Um, you know, um, at the age you were, David, you know, yeah. elitism yeah. is a big part of of, of, uh, totally of listening more, absolutely yeah. i mean for me as a kid obviously nine ten years old the, if we can just talk about the record before we even get mm. on to the performance yes the record on the radio had already you know entranced me really mainly because that that casio beat oh. that was you know it's both melody and rhythm but the, more importantly it's accessible to me Mm. Yes. I can go into Dixon's and I can press buttons yes. and make that sound wow. happen, you know. Yeah. And also, it my might s- not be the sound of the street in 1982, <laughs> but it's definitely the sound of the high street. And yes, <laughs> yeah. Neil, like me, utterly infectious to yeah. people of our age, massively mm. reachable. You know, we had some of these keyboards in our school in the music room, so so there was that as well. Oh, uh, you jammy bastards! I know, jammy bastards. But that uh, a massive pop hit could be hinged around something so simple was a, it was a real revelation to me because synths, you know, in the hands of people like Human League, etc. They were everywhere I looked, but they always seemed kind of impossibly expensive, you know, used Mm. by technicians. And here, they're being used by people who definitely aren't slick in a way, and they're being used in an almost childish and infantile way in terms of the expertise needed. Um, It's a really mind-blowingly kind of minimal thing. But it's yeah. immediately arresting because of that sound when you're a kid. It's a real earworm. And, and so that every element that then gets blended in on that basis, um, you know, the basic rock and roll guitar that we hear, and of course the motif melodically that ends up getting played on the Casio, they become mm. big pop moments. And that's yes. the thing. It's a big pop smash made out of very small moments. The only record it reminds me of in that regard is something like The Flying Lizards. It's, mm. it's one of those records that's right on a tightrope. It's totally catchy pop magic but it's also showing you the nuts and bolts yes. in a way it's like this kind of yeah. Wizard of Oz revealing um, method of production you know and, and, and yeah. of course inviting the question even as a kid are we getting played by this record do you know what I mean mm. are, are we getting caught so it's an amazing record for, for a little child mm. um but the great thing about, I think, this performance is that everything good about it, including its, its odd stance somewhere between sort of despair and a smile, it's accentuated by Top of the Pops. Yes, Hurl completely goes along with oh, the yes. weirdness, which is really lovely to see. The VL1 sound, it's one of those sounds that kids 
fucking go mental for. <laughs> We're four years away from that beat that happens in the first round of 3-2-1, which kids always used to get up and dance to. Mm-hmm. We're about four months away from hearing the countdown bit for the first yeah, time. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah this yeah. is a golden age for bleepy bloopiness. <laughs> bleepy bloopiness, mm. yeah, exactly, exactly. Michael Hill's mm. played an absolute blind here, so let's break it all down. So, first of all, for the first time in the whole episode, they've actually let us see the kids. They're all sitting around the band in a horseshoe, holding up pieces of card with faces drawn on them. And that's giving off some severe vibes of the opening credits of Rolf on Saturday OK. Yeah. Which was produced by Michael Hull, of course. Oh. But we can still see them peeking out from behind the cards. Yeah. And, and they look a million times better than the zoo wankers. Oh, too mm. bloody right, yeah. I mean, there's one lad who you think's part of the band at the beginning because of the camera angle. And he's got a Theatre of Hate logo stenciled on the arm of his leather jacket. He's sitting behind a girl who is the absolute dead spit of a teenage Rose West. (laughs) There's loads of miniskirts on the girls which are coming back into vogue. Mm. And there's one white girl with dreads. You know, this is months before Do You Really Want to Hurt Me becomes a hit. Yeah. And there's one bloke who's a bit older and he looks the dead spit of Mick Mills, who's just come back from Spain. So, yeah, there's Mm. a lot going on just with the audience. Yeah, and I wonder Mm. about those pictures that they're holding up. I sort of started assuming, and I think I did at the time that the audience had been asked to draw pictures of themselves that's what i thought yeah and i'm not sure what point that makes but i loved its oddity and and its boldness well Mm. according to someone on youtube who was there the kids were given the portraits which had already been done and were conjoled into getting involved basically saying if you want to see yourself on telly you hold this card up it's pretty clear that about two or three different people have have done the artwork yeah i think that goes with the image on the t-shirt that stefan remy is wearing which is the cover of uh the single right, which yeah, is yeah. you know childish drawings of the band yeah yeah mm. feeling mm. into that dada thing a little bit but i mean yeah, yeah, yeah. and making it appear that the the kids are part of the band yeah definitely and mm. i remember the response to this especially in the smash it's letters page and stuff being mm. about how ugly trio are right Mm. and you know because they're not tarted up they're not made up like everyone else is in this episode no they are i wouldn't say they're ugly but if they are ugly they're ugly in a way that we've not seen on top of the pop since really punk since since the kind of punk era yes you know and and that in itself they're kind of unmade up unoutfitted sort of what the fuckness it it Mm. is kind of revelatory in itself you know and you've also got you've got so much else going on in this performance you know yeah the top of the pops video screen's been brought out of storage in order to show us the lyrics and there's a robot dancer in a boiler suit who is neither tick or tock he's a black dancer so yeah black robots good lord is that not daniel do you reckon that might have been daniel oh no 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 you sure yeah well, look, when I watched it, I chose to think it was him. No, well, we're, that's what we're saying now, then. Mm. No. I think what you're saying really makes sense, and it's another reminder as well as <clears throat> of our age gap. As like, father of the chart music house, I realised what an old git I am. And, <laughs> and I was like, probably a bit 10 years too old, too old even at this point, in a sense. Um, um, you know, I think w- w- what you say does make sense. I mean... Obviously, what they they are doing is it, it is an act of deconstruction. It's sort of stripping mm, things back yeah, to yeah. this element, and also it's a kind of 
anti-pop thing going on. So metapop is almost like a sort of slightly Brechtian yeah. thing going on. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. I don't love you, you don't love me. It, it's sort of shades of like, uh, you know, is it peaceful? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dribble wedge in the vegetation, I think it wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, 1982 is the most German year mm. in British culture, isn't it? You know, Kraftwerk, number one with a model... Uh, high mats, dust boots. Mm. Oh, it's all going on. Yeah, we're, mm. we're finally opening up to uh, to our German cousins. But every yeah. time, every time I watch this clip, something inexplicable catches me. I mean, this time yes. it was the parasol behind the drummer. Yes. Why the fuck mm. is that there? And one other thing I noticed, which might seem like a tiny detail, but let's face it, chart music's all about tiny details. It's Definitely. the fact that the singer chews gun was a big deal mm. for me. I thought that was so cool. I, I, the only other person I remember chewing gum a lot was obviously Paul Weller, who always yes. seemed to chew gum. Um, he might have nicked that habit from Nick Lowe. Mm. And there's also that great bit, of course, when, you know, something you just wouldn't see pre-Watershed at all. Oh, now, God, yeah, yeah. when the guitarist um, sparks up a fag um, yes. off stage and purchased it on his guitar string, and then that don't work, mm. so he lights up another one. These yeah. are odd things for a Top of the Pops performance. And, you know, yes. I'm sure Trio perhaps just did what came naturally but by doing that Mm. they've made something really memorable really memorable Mm. i don't know about that neil because being germans they would have seen a lot of top of the pops that's true that is because music laden and all 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 the top and pop and shows were always showing top of the pops clips so they they would have come to this knowing what was expected of Mm. them Mm. And what they could do to to put themselves over, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, the band looks sinister as fuck. And you're mm. right, I was getting a lot of punk vibes off it. Yeah, as we mentioned when we do punk era episodes of Top of the Pops, there was always that element of the singer just staring at the camera yeah. and shitting up children. <laughs> yeah. mm. And we get that here. Stefan Remier, he looks like Glassich, who's the the scabby outsider in High Mat. Mm. He's in a, a shapeless black suit with a brooch on his lapel shaped like a woman's arse mm. over a trio band t-shirt which he kind of like flashes at, at one point and a, a big inside pocket so he can whip out the Casio VL1 but halfway through singing one of the lines he just snarls at the camera he does he does but it never and feel- it's fucking brilliant the thing is crucial thing is it never feels mean spirited no I, I mean I, I read an interview with Trio by Gary Bushel I think and, right. and you know it, 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 their English isn't great neither is Gary Bushel's though is it <laughs> <laughs> but at one point the lead singer does say you know the word we use for our music is frolic which is near to your cheerfulness right that's what he says <laughs> Mm. And he says, you know, we're the first of German new wave orientated bands who put entertainment into the act and little gags. Mm. Uh, he says before everything was only frustration and anger. We make rock and roll with entertainment, but it's more like a cynical cheerfulness where you don't know mm. whether to laugh or cry. There's a black mm. humor to it. Yeah. And he also says, by the way, um, we don't want to be lumped in the same bag as Gruppo Sportive or Haircut 100, who are only entertainment with nothing to refer to. Ooh. So they're not pure pop, but they're also not mm. scourly punk. That There's a kind of in-betweenness to the, to the record and, and mm. this performance that, as a yeah. kid, certainly you don't know where to put this in your mind or no. file it. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's always a memorable moment, you know. Yeah. I mean, also... It's one of those things, you know, you've got like John Cleese and the Germans have, you Germans have no bloody sense of humour. <laughs> and yet again, yet again, especially through the media music, you know, German, there, is, there is a profound and sly sense yes, of humour. Yes. Not only a sense of humour, but a sense of humour of which British acts or whatever 
actually wouldn't be capable. Mm. I mean, and humour has a way of enhancing a lot of great German music, like yeah. Kraftwerk, like mm. DAF, you know. Mm. Objectively now, I, I can see that it, it, it was a very, very special thing, and it mm. was, you know, it, it deserved an occasion. I still feel that if somehow or other DAF or Dear Plan, or even maybe if they'd have gone on top of the pops, it might have been even more blind. Oh god, yeah. mind blowing. Yeah, that's that's the <laughs> yeah. thing. Didn't write a hit record though, did they, David? Yeah, yeah. Well, this is true. Unless <laughs> <laughs> you got Dear Mussolini, you know. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, Gert Kravinkel, he he looks like an absolute kraut rock refugee, doesn't he? Mm. Wearing faded double denim and a wears Wally hat, and yes, his bit is lighting up the fag. Mm in the studio and screwing it into a springy cigarette holder on his headstock. Yeah. Which, again, would get him flung straight out of sparks. Yeah. <laughs> Peter Behrens, the drummer, he's come as a skinhead Tintin, essentially, hasn't he? <laughs> in a white T-shirt and incredibly thick red braces. And he kicks his bass drum at the beginning. Uh, looks like he's wearing a pair of kickers. And then in a heartless plunge of the dagger into the hearts of the English pop-crazed youngsters, and Mick Mills, who's in the fucking studio, <laughs> he brandishes a Telstar football with thank you yeah, written on it, and uh, then just smiles really fucking <laughs> evil there. Yes. A clear dig. Uh, over West Germany, top in their second round yeah, group. Absolutely, yeah. three days previously. I mean, it's interesting what you mentioned right at the start about was it McBeat and and, and the fact that 1966, the kind of group that they would have been in. I mean, trio in a sense precede and succeed Krautrock um, mm. because Krautrock was actually part of it was a response to the fact that like so many German groups were simply aping the Beatles, yeah. the Rattles, yeah, yeah. people mm. like that. It was almost like a sort of cultural martial plan that was going on. They felt, look, you know, we're Germans, we're creative. We need to sort of find something, you know, original of our own that isn't just sort of following ang- Anglo-American orthodoxies. You know, it's actually vital as part of our post-war regeneration. You know, they're kind of mm. thinking in those musical terms. And so it's hard, you know, that they should have been part of all of that and, of course, have the Klaus Vormann connection uh, to exacerbate that. But then, yes. yeah, and then, but then come out and be, and be part of almost, I suppose I do think of it as, as the point where sort of post-punk West German moment was perhaps just beginning, as much as it was in the UK, was just beginning to sort of fade. Um, but um, so, yeah, so perhaps I bring, you know, sort of a, a certain amount of begrudging baggage to Trio, that they don't merit. So I'm glad that you chaps, uh, you know, and get the joy mm. of it. Well, I mean, part of what gets this across to me as a kid is actually Hurl, actually. Mm. I have to say this, that, you know, that we, we've often talked about Hurl being... Uh, sort of overlooking a a slight golden age, but also we've picked out the things that he did wrong. Mm. But what he did right, I don't think what he did right was tell bands what to do. He just did that perfect thing of putting things in place Mm. and letting accidents happen a little bit. I mean, they would have pitched up and he would have said, look, we've got this for you. We want to do this, we want to do that, we want to do that. You cool with it? Good, let's do it. Mm. Yeah. Exactly, yeah, and, yeah. and this is where magic happens. Yes, in living rooms, you know. Yeah, that's the very, very, very dada, you know, the element of chance. Yeah, I was on a German exchange in the spring of this year. You know, I'd have been back mm-hmm. about six or so weeks ago. Hand on heart, I can't remember hearing it once when I was in Germany, which is fucking mental. Maybe it was played out by then, mm, Al. Maybe it was maybe like it was. Done, a done deal. Maybe like it was. But when it was on yeah. top of the pot three weeks ago, just 30 seconds of it, it fucking rocked the fucking playground to its foundations. I remember one of my mates, Daryl, <laughs> just saying, have you heard that song that just goes, da, 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 da. Yeah, it's fucking mad, isn't it? Mm. And we got it instantly, of course, but... You know, right. as as we've already pointed out, it, it created an absolute generation gap 
Mm. Even with someone who's only a bit older, than, like David, mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. you know, our yeah, parents no, fucking hated it and started mm. wondering who won the war anyway. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This is a record that would be held up as kind of, is this even music? Yes. You know, it, it's I, that kind of I, I do have to yeah. be distinguished from members of that generation because, of course, as we know, I am a very rarefied soul in terms of my refined aesthetics. Yeah. So <laughs> we can point, yeah. since no one else is going to point that out, you know, I just thought I would. <laughs> yeah. Well, a letter... In the Daily Mirror soon afterwards, which I dug up, uh, entitled, What a Load of Da, Da, Da. Mm. I couldn't believe it when I saw the German group trio on top of the pops pointing to the words of their hit song, Da, 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 on a board. Oh, for the songs of my childhood. Why can't today's composers write such happy numbers as Keep Your Sunny Side Up, Happy Days Are Here Again, or The Sunny Side of the Street? <laughs> Yours sincerely, R.M. Lord, Rochford, Essex. Ah, mm. oh, fuck off, Grandad. <laughs> yeah. Kids live in it. Anything else to say about this? It will always be returned to da da da, I think, when something needs to be summoned, i.e., this kind of futurism that failed. Yes. If you like. And, and, you know, like Slang Tang, it's, it's a rhythm that's a melody that's a whole record mm. in a yes. way. And, and God, it's, it's yeah, sort of same age, year, you know? isn't it? Yeah, same year. I'm shocked that we didn't hear more of that sound on records. All I can think of at the same time is The Bubble Bunch by Jimmy Spicer. Mm. And that was sampled by uh, Delight for Who Was That? Mm. Mm. And, of course, Poor Georgie by MC Light, that, which is fucking devastated. When that yeah. kicks in, man, whoa! Yeah, but most musicians, you see, they'd be getting better kit than a Casio, one of those little Casios. Whereas yeah. Trio, they're deliberate. I don't want to call them fucking pranksters because that makes them sound awful. Mm. But they're deliberately going for the cheapest thing you can mm. get. Yes. Um, and, that's, and it's yeah. great when he just pulls that out and holds it close to his face, going, look at me, look what I'm using. <laughs> yeah, mm. yeah. Yeah. Two absolute landmark performances on the same episode of Top of the Pops and an example of Michael Hurl getting it absolutely right. Absolutely. Yeah. Hats off, yeah, sir. Definitely. So the following week, Da 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 soared another 23 places to number seven. And the week after that, it jumped to number two, held off the top spot by fame. It would go on to be number one in New Zealand and South Africa and sell 13 million copies worldwide. And a week after this episode, in the wake of Italy beating West Germany in the World Cup final, Italio Chancer's Masters put out Mundial Da Da Da. Hmm. Not very good. Yeah. The follow-up... Anna Let Me In, Let Me Out only got to number 113 over here and they returned to being a German-only concern, splitting up in 1984. But the song lived on, ending up on an Ariston advert in 1987, then a Volkswagen advert in America in 1997, and an unpar version was deployed by Pepsi for an ad campaign during the 2006 World Cup. Mm. Sadly, Stefan Remier is the only surviving member of the band. Oh. What a shame. Yeah. I just imagine just living on a sort of island. Even it was 13 million sales. I just imagine just, mm. you know, at the end of um, Trading Places, that island they all retire to. Or a massive luxury apartment block shaped like a Casio. <laughs> <laughs> And 
on that glorious life-affirming note, we're going to step away from this episode of Top of the Pops for a little while and reconvene tomorrow for the thrilling denouement. And oh, don't forget, Pop Craze Youngsters, if you want to drill down deeper into July of 1982, we've got a massive video playlist. Every song that's on this episode of Top of the Pops, everything we talk about and loads more are just waiting for you at youtube.com slash chartmusictotp. So on behalf of David Stubbs and Neil Kulkarna, I'm Al Needham. Stay pop crazed, why don't you? Chart music. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.